Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Well, in the interest of full disclosure, we're talking about money today. At our recent elders meeting, we had pretty new experience as far as elders meetings go, as budget cycles go. We were we're in a budget, we're, we're in, I don't know what budget cycle even means, so forgive me for using the term. But we are preparing a budget for the next year. And there's a budget committee that works in our church to present a proposal to the Board of Elders. That Board of Elders then brings that proposal adopted or mended to the congregation. The congregation adopts a budget. That's the process. We're about to go through that process soon. Well, we're in it. And that budget committee made its proposal to us at the last elders meeting and Lucas Weeks took us through the proposal and it was kind of like this. It was, okay, so you're telling me, Lucas, that we're, the Lord has helped us to manage our commitments well this year. Good. And you're proposing that we just accept a pretty modest, not too risky, not too adventurous, but modest increase for next year. Okay. And we've paid off a whole bunch of personal loans. And we have savings accounts with actual real money in them. That's a pretty new experience. Yes, praise God. But that's a, that's a new day in my experience serving on the elders board and being in this church. And you'll hear about it at the budget meeting coming up. But what happened? Where did the money come from? Allie's laughing. Thank you. Where did the money come from? Who said that? Good man. True answer. He said God. Always behind the scenes, there's Mike negotiating for, on our behalf. And I've heard it taken, uh, the history of those negotiations walked through before, and they're really beautiful. And I hope that you will always remember to be thankful for Mike's work for us. That's part of the, of the answer. But the real answer is what? Stimulus money. The real answer is stimulus money, both to our church from the federal government and to each of us as individuals, as families. We've had a massive influx of stimulus money into our lives, and it's going to continue. Seems like it's going to continue for the foreseeable future. I am not in favor of the recovery bills. I'm sure many of you are similarly not happy with them, but there they are. The money came in. It plops in magically into your bank account just because you exist and are an American. They are an ill will that's blowing this church some good. And disproportionately so. Why disproportionately so? Because we're young 
and young generally means poorer, and poorer generally means more stimulus. We skew young as a church, but that's not really the reason. The reason is because God has given us faith for years to have children. And the stimulus increases dramatically with every child. It's helpful to put a, a calculation to this collectively, a corporate calculation. You all aware of the, your individual stimulus money that's come in, but as we've done work to do some calculations, some estimates about the, the bigger picture, here's what we find. It's to the, the conservative estimate is to the tune of a million dollars has come and will come to you this year as individual families collectively from the federal government because of your children. That's a lot of money that just plops down out of nowhere. God is providing for us through our children. I, I think that's wonderful. I was talking to a few years ago to a, a marketing lady, a very good marketing lady, and I was talking to her about our church and asked her, what, how could we promote our church? If we wanted to promote our church, what should we do? And she said, well, the most obvious thing, the best thing you all have going for you, just screaming me in the face, is all of those children. You have, a, you have lots of children, and you should lead with that. You should tell every, everybody in your community should know how many children you have there. Why? Most of the time, we're kind of embarrassed about that. You know, we go to Walmart, and we feel like I have to hide my children. Why should we lead with that? She said, well, you know, people will put up with an awful lot to have good friends for their kids. They'll even put up with you. (laughs) God is providing for us through our children at this time. So, again, it's not that I approve of the stimulus bills when I say God's providing. The money feels icky. The money is icky. But what are you going to do about it? There it is. Are you going to send it back? Are you going to compartmentalize it and sort of refuse to think about it or view it as this this separate thing that doesn't enter into the normal equations of life or godliness. What are we supposed to do with it? This new day, this new reality. Proverbs 3.9 gives the big principle for what we're to do with our wealth. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. This generally is what we're to do. It's always been the case, even before the stimulus checks started arriving, all of us, from the richest to the poorest, has wealth and have always have had wealth. Wealth is a word that stands for the stuff that God has given us. We have a degree of stuff entrusted to us by God, all of us. We've always had wealth. All of a sudden, though, we got wealthy or wealthier. We've been learning for years how to live without money as a church. And somebody said recently, I I think this is how it went, that this is a church that knows how to, to spin a nickel out of a penny. God's taught us that. 
out of necessity. We've had big ideas, we've had big ambitions, big hopes, and we haven't had a lot of money to, to, to burn to realize those, those things. And we have learned how to be efficient and productive in spite of it. But thank God that we've been under that discipline. Think how insufferable we would be as a church if we had the money to go with our ideas. It's been a good discipline for us. We should thank God for the restraint and the discipline that we've been under as a church for many years. Now it seems, though, that God would have us to learn how to live with money. And it's not just because of the stimulus checks. It's for the fact that there is this building, and it sits on property. And we're not a church like Jake and Amanda, Andy, out in Columbus. We're not a church starting from scratch. We have done work. Groundwork has been laid. A lot of investment has been made. The young people are inheriting that. And I, I'm glad that there's work still to be done because there's a challenge, the fact that there's a challenge ahead and challenges ahead for many years, perhaps, is something to thank God for and bless him for because if there was no challenge, that would be spiritually bad for us. It's good to have a challenge, to have pressure. So there's a building, there's land, there's businesses that are growing. You know, for a long time, we've just had a lot of people that were struggling and now there are actual businesses that are successful and prospering. And they're employing people and they're looking to employ more people. We are growing up, us young people who used to be, you know, used to have, I mean, just yesterday, Jenna and I were just young, it seems like, and now we're growing up. And as you grow up, generally speaking, you grow your wealth. Life gets a little easier, a little bit more comfortable. That's happening to us as a church. We're growing up. As we grow up, as life is easing up a bit, as the pressure is lessening, realize this, that having money is a scary proposition. Having money is a scary proposition. Try this exercise. Do a word search in the Bible for riches, wealth, money. That's a very sobering exercise. Do you remember the example of Solomon, King Solomon? Solomon's father, David, a man after God's own heart, wrote many psalms, very godly man, very ambitious man for God, loved the Lord, served the Lord. Wasn't perfect? Nope. But he loved the Lord. He was used of God greatly. And God used him to bring about peace for his people and established them peace all around them so that Solomon, his son, inherited a, a land of peace a reign of peace. He reigned over a peaceful time and a very prosperous time. And that was conveyed in Solomon's wealth, his own personal wealth. Tremendous. What happened? It corrupted him. It was under this time of peace and prosperity that the kingdom declined and eventually was divided, came under God's judgment. 
riches, money, security, prosperity, danger, danger, risky business. Money's a danger to our souls. We can't live without it, but it's difficult to live with it and not be corrupted by it. Now, because of these things, the elders asked that there be some preaching about money today, and I'm the lucky schmuck. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. I'm not here to give investment advice. I'm not here to give an economics lecture. I'm the last person in this church that should attempt that. I want to give us those seven biblical principles from God's word, sound principles, that I hope will help us in this present circumstance to honor the Lord from our wealth. By no means exhaustive or definitive, just some basic helps for us, some foundation stones, a path to walk down. Okay? Seven principles. Here's the first principle. You can't serve God and wealth. Here's where we start. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus made this very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 24 says, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We were made to worship and serve God alone and to serve him with all that we are and all that we have, all that he's entrusted to us. What has God entrusted to us as man? The whole planet. He has put us in charge of the planet. We are to subdue it and to rule over it. All the fish, all the trees, all the potential of it all is under our domain. It was submitted to us. From the beginning, God put us here to act on his behalf to care for what he had made and to cultivate it and develop it. To cultivate the earth, to pursue productivity, to work, to develop things, and to, and, and to enjoy the, the fruit of our labors. All of that's very good and by design, and God put us here to do that. Where does it go wrong? Why did Jesus have to warn us about the fact that you can't serve God and, and mammon or wealth? Well, it's because we flip the whole thing on its head. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. We make gods out of things that the true God put under our feet. This is what we're doing all the time. The human heart, John Calvin said, the human heart is a virtual factory of idols. We set up idols out of anything except the Lord. We will refuse to worship him and we're constantly churning out idols for ourselves. And idolatry is a very serious and deadly sin. It's one of those root sins that thankfully Jesus came to redeem us from. And in redeeming us and forgiving us of our tendency to make idols out of things and to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, he restores us to this proper role in this world of cultivating and caring for and, and producing things in the world for his glory. We, he, re, he restores the order of God at the top, us in the middle, and everything else beneath our feet. 
He, he gives the right priority. He, Jesus restores that by his work. That's what he came to do. But we're still tempted by idolatry, you and me. And certainly by an idolatry of wealth. Wealth is probably the most easily and most commonly abused of God's gifts, of the realities of this world, of the creatureliness of this world, the pursuit of riches, the mining of the earth for its value, the the producing of stuff, the acquiring of stuff. This becomes an idol, a God for many of us. And Jesus says, right here at the beginning, choose one or the other. You got to serve somebody. You got to serve something. Who's it going to be? You cannot serve both God and riches, one or the other. Here's a quote that I found interesting by A.W. Hare. The true child of this world, so a worldling, a person who's not thinking about God, who's just thinking about the world, a true child of this world is thoroughgoing, active, persevering. They work hard. When he's made up his mind that this or that thing is desirable, he sets his heart upon having it. Mammon, wealth, stuff, is the God he's chosen for himself, and he serves his God as a God ought to be served with all his heart, with all his mind, and with all his strength. He's wise, therefore, in his way. Isn't that interesting? Wealth is a God, a false God. And as a God, it demands our worship. And many people worship it. And they worship it with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. God made your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength to be given to him. And yet we give it to wealth, to the pursuit of wealth. A man who serves the God of wealth in this way will often, what will happen? Often he will get rich. But hear what Jesus warned in Luke 12, 16 to 21. He told them a parable, a story with a point saying, The land of a rich man was very productive and he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do? since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this, I, this, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus says you can be rich toward God. You can pursue God and and receive the fruit of that pursuit in your life. You can know God and be enriched by him with all that that means. Or you can pursue wealth and be enriched by that. We're to be rich toward God. Now, it's by no means wrong to have a job, to have a business, to work hard, and to receive the, the reasonable fruit that comes from that labor. That's good. 
but it is offensive to God and destructive to our souls if we turn that pursuit into a God that we serve. We are to pursue wealth, we are to work hard for God's glory and for the good of others, not for ourselves. Not as a God, anyway, that demands our service. Every day we're faced with this heart-level choice. Who or what are we going to worship and pursue? And so, brothers and sisters, right here at the beginning, as we're thinking about money and wealth and how to honor the Lord with it, right here at the beginning, choose. Choose this day who you will serve. Examine your heart. And make the choice to choose the Lord and to serve him. Principle number two. God provides. God provides. If you choose money over God or wealth over God or stuff over God, you may get money, but you won't get God. That's absolutely a guarantee. If you choose money and wealth over God, you, will, you may get that but you will not get God. On the other hand, what? If you choose God over money, you'll find God. Those who seek him will find him. Those who knock, the door will be opened unto them. You will find God if you seek him. And you will have from his hand, the hand of your heavenly father, everything you need. He will provide for you everything you need. You choose God over money, and you'll get both God and from him all that you need. Not always what you desire, thankfully, but all that you need, and more than you need. (laughs) Much more than you need. God is a bountiful giver. He is a loving heavenly father. He loves to give good gifts. He loves to give not just life, but abundant life. It is found in him. If you seek him, you will find that he abundantly provides for your needs. Jesus says in Matthew 6.33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. The false god of wealth, of mammon, this King James calls it mammon, the false god mammon, is that a nice god to serve? No. Is it ever satisfied? No. Like any self-respecting God, it demands everything from its worshiper, from its servants. It demands everything. But unlike the true God, it never gives. It only takes. It just keeps demanding and keeps demanding. It's relentless, and it will leave you exhausted and empty and destroyed. It, will ne- it promises much, it promises happiness, it promises satisfaction and joy and blessing, and it never fulfills on those promises. It just keeps taking. The God of heaven, the true God, though, gives abundantly. He demands everything, and yet he returns an abundance to his people. He is a father. Fathers, wicked fathers like me, know how to give good gifts to my children. 
How much more, Jesus says, does the heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to his children? God not just provides, but he provides real good for his people. Serve the God of wealth and you'll be perpetually dissatisfied and anxious and empty. But if you serve the Lord your God with all your heart, you'll be fat and happy. Even with very little. To actually be able to say this very little that I have before me comes from God. And I don't deserve it. That is a joy and a privilege and a delight that few in the world can claim for themselves. Better, it says in Proverbs something or other, I said it was from Psalm 37 in the first service, but I found my wife pointed out that that's absolutely not true. It's from somewhere in the book of Proverbs. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. It's better to have a little with righteousness than to have a whole lot of stuff without God. Now, increasingly, we're finding ourselves not with little, but with much. Are the stimulus checks and the tax credits God's provision for us? That's an uncomfortable question. Are they God's provision for us? They are. They absolutely are. It's weird how he's providing. Who can say what he's up to in America? Judging us, probably. But in the midst of wrath, he's remembering mercy for you and me. And he is providing for us. So what are you going to (laughs) do? What's the lesson to learn? Oh, I should be really anxious about tomorrow? You know, when we set budgets historically in this church, it was almost invariably the fact that over the past years we faced this very common expected dilemma every year where we're getting towards the end of the year and we're like, oh man, we're not quite making it with our tithes and offerings. And then boom, out of nowhere comes this big gift that makes up the difference. And then we always say to ourselves, but you can't count on that again. (laughs) And true, you can't count on that again. (laughs) But you can count on God to provide. He provides, and he provides real good. So let's live as if he's there, and that we're not depending on ourselves, but on him to provide. Principle number three, give thanks for what you have. Give thanks for what God provides. So I said idolatry is a root sin, but there's an even more fundamental sin than idolatry. It's the sin of ingratitude, of thanklessness. Ingratitude is the sin that actually ruined the world. And it will ruin us too if we let it. The fall of man came about in this way, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, verse 21. For even though they knew God, 
they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Now that's a little throwaway line, easy to miss, but it's very significant. It's intentional that it's there. They did not give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory, you could say the riches, of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's the story of man. We turn from God to worship worms. No joke. Pieces of wood that couldn't talk or hear or think or speak or provide. Set them up as something to be feared and revered and to pray to and to serve. And we've gotten more sophisticated in our day and age where we you know, we look down on people who have little idols in their homes, but we have gods that we serve, ambitions that we serve, desires that we're serving that are equally horrendous. And the way that came about was ingratitude. They did not give thanks. So ingratitude led Adam and Eve into idolatry, and it's always best to fight sin at its root. So do you want to win against sin? We, we pray for our children um, that they would say, learn to say no to sin. We pray that for our kids when we're putting them in the bed at night often. Would you teach so-and-so to learn to say no to sin? Do you want to learn to say no to sin? Fight it at its root. You want to put sin to death? Fight your ingratitude. Learn to give thanks. And you will have cut a lot of sin that flows downstream from ingratitude off right at at the head, right at the source. You learn to give thanks to God for his goodness. I was talking to a young man in our church this week, appealing to him, listening to him complain about how no one's done him right. And I said, you don't know who you are. You don't know who you are. If you would study yourself and know your sin and think about God's mercy and kindness in Jesus, it'll really help you (laughs) because suddenly you'll realize None of that stuff that I've been claiming and hold, getting bitter about matters at all. God has been so kind to me and I don't deserve anything that I get. And suddenly, the fact that I have a friend of any kind is a, is a treasure that I don't deserve. Give thanks. Give thanks. Thankfulness flows from a heart that knows it's, that it's aware of its self, of its sin, of its guilt, of its undeservedness. Give thanks to God and you'll fight sin at its root. And thank God for his provision right now. That's why I'm bringing this up, okay? (laughs) If God has provided you money and it was unexpected and is it helpful? Give thanks for it. It does not honor God for you to ignore it to poo-poo it, 
or to fail to give thanks and acknowledge his goodness and his blessing in your life. So give thanks for it. And you can do that and still have your reservations. I hope you do. (laughs) It's not good. Big picture, it's not good. But very specifically to you right now, it is good. Because every good and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of the heavenly lights. So praise him and give him thanks. Principle number four. Be be content with what you have. You might think, well, we don't need it. We don't need to think about contentment. We just got a whole lot of money. If you were discontent before the check arrived, you're discontent still. Wherever you go, that's where you are. (laughs) We tend to think that if I could just get over there in that other part of the country or in that other situation, if I could just get my driver's license, if I could just any number of things, that life's going to get better and happier and I'm going to get well-adjusted all of a sudden. No. (laughs) No. If you were discontent before, you're discontent still, and you need to learn to be content. And discontent produces, it it is, well, it is the fruit of something. Discontentedness is the fruit of thankfulness. It's the very sweet and peaceful fruit of thankfulness. And to, to actually be content, to be able to rejoice in what God has given you and to say, it's enough. It's more than I deserve. I, I poo-poo that, that hackneyed phrase that everyone says, how are you doing today? Better than I deserve. But it's true. I can't deny it. I want to hate it, and it gets me every time. <laughs> it's absolutely true. You're better than you deserve. Be content. Be content. Discontent produces bad fruit. And it results in all kinds of trouble and unrest and conflict among us. James 4, 1 to 3 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Discontent is throughout that passage. Did you catch those phrases? Lust, you lust and do not have. You're filled, you have this sense that you lack something and you want it, so you lust after it. And what does that produce? Murder. It leads to murder. Murder. You are envious. You see people with things that you wish and want for yourselves. You think that you deserve. God hasn't given that to you, but he's given it to somebody else. So you're envious towards it, towards them for it. And it leads to, verse 2, fighting and quarreling. You do not have because you do not ask. Discontent is through this passage. Lust and envy are the fruit that discontent produces, and they lead to fighting and quarreling and even to murder. God would have us learn to be content, to rejoice in his goodness, to be satisfied 
with what he's provided us. You know, God gives different circumstances to different people. Different times in your life, you, your circumstances are up and they're down, you know? This is a fact of life. Sometimes I'm up and you're down, and sometimes you're up and I'm down, and sometimes I'm way up higher than you ever get, and sometimes you're way lower than I ever get, or way higher. Anywhere you look, you're going to see what? Inequality. Inequality is everywhere. And that's by God's choice. That's his sovereign will at work. He dispenses gifts and graces and goods and blessings as he sees fit. Why? For the good of those who love him. And he knows what you need. And he gives you what you need. So, why am I talking about that? Do you know that the, the, a lot of American economic policy right now is being enacted in the name of equality? We want to level the playing field. We want to bring the poor up. We can do that by bringing the rich down. That's, that's the name of the game, right? That's what economic policy right now is trying to accomplish. And is it going to accomplish it? No! How do I know? Oh, it's been tried, yeah. It's been tried. It doesn't, it, it's, it doesn't work. But I know because my check's different than your check. So in the short term right now, there is a lot of equality, inequality in the room, okay? Okay? This is why I'm talking about it. You can pretty much know how big, pretty quickly and easily, how big any particular person's check was by looking at the row. how full their row is. There's a lot of inequality in the room. Don't be jealous. Guard your heart against jealousy. Be content. This is a horrible, wonderful, horrible opportunity to get jealous. And jealousy and envy leads to fighting and fighting to murder. So don't guard your heart against envy. I know it's weird because envy is really what drives the whole machine. (laughs) Envy is what drives economic policy. And it's resulted in this opportunity for us to be envious of one another. So let's not be. Be content with what God provides. Are you hearing me about that? Okay. Principle number five, work hard for your living. Work hard for your living. You cannot separate wealth from work. The earth does not give up its rewards without industry and effort. And godliness is completely opposed to idleness. God does not want you to be idle. He does not want you playing video games all day, young men. He wants you working. And he wants you working hard. First, I'll show this to you. This is a sobering thing in the New Testament especially about work and how unapologetic the New Testament writers are in claiming it as a a matter of life and death, a matter of 
of godliness and of eternal security, whether you work or not, okay? 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The apostles, the writers of the New Testament, are not super spiritual. They're real practical. And they make these very strong and unapologetic connections between facts of life and day-to-day business and godliness and your eternal soul. And here's a very profound one. If you don't work and provide for your needs and the needs of your household well, you're worse than an unbeliever and you've basically denied the faith. God did not save you to be idle. He saved you to work. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Now notice here that it says not willing to work. There are some who truly are willing but not able. Should they eat? Yes. We should help them. That's a very terrible burden to not be able to provide for yourself, not to be able to eat. There are people who can't do that. We should help them. We should specialize in helping them, especially as the church. But I don't even mind the state helping them. That's, let's help people. But those who are able yet unwilling, the, the scriptures say, should not eat. Now, social welfare programs are creating a generation of people who are unwilling to work. There are lots of people who claim to be unable to work who are just simply unwilling to work. And then there's a whole lot more people that now are, even in this last year, have become a lot less willing. Why? Because the government, in putting its hand on the scale, de-incentivized, is that the proper word? De-incentivized work. I've talked to some employers here in this church and elsewhere, and I'm hearing the same thing. I can't get anybody to work for me. The cost of labor is going up. Nobody wants to work. It's hard to, hard to find enough and keep enough people on the payroll. There's always been a, a certain segment of the society that's like that, but it's just gotten a lot bigger because now there's no incentive to work or much less incentive. The checks just come in anyway. I was talking to a father between the services and he was talking about how I was challenging him about how much he works. Not how little, but how much. How He works too much, okay? So there's a flip side to this that I'll get to in a second. But this gentleman works too much. That's what I hear from people. He works too much. And he said, well, you know, I do work more than the other people in my job or in my company, but I'm also one income my wife stays home a lot. She does, you know, we don't have a lot of income coming in. I am the, I am the breadwinner. And it's hard to do that in, in this day and age when we've made the, we've made the jump to in, two income households, no more living wage. We have two income households. That's the norm. And if you're, if you're swimming upstream against the norm, you have to work, you have to swim a little harder. There's an incentive in it, though. If you have this commitment, you're enjoying the commitment and and the fruit of it and the blessing of it in your life, 
there's incentive built in for a man to work. You take that incentive away, you give him free money, and there's less incentive. Why am I talking about it? This is an opportunity for us to get bitter and envious. It's also an opportunity for us to get lazy. This is a cultural shift that's taking place. Maybe it won't be here three years from now. Maybe it's here forever. Whatever the case is, it's here now, and it can turn you lazy. Work. Don't let it corrupt you. Work hard. Parents, teach your kids to work. There's a wonderful book called Created for Work. I, th- I think that's the title, Created for Work. I know Bob Sands has had his boys. Have you, do you know Bob Sands' kids can work? They've read this book, Created for Work. You might want to look into it. It's, it's easy to read, well done, it's godly, it's by a Christian, and it's about work and the goodness of work. Teach your kids to work. Work hard yourself. If the government is reducing your incentive, find new incentives. <laughs> but work, it's godly to work. It is not godly to be idle and lazy. Work. So this, there's this wonderful article here. I've got a couple copies left. If you would like to read it, I would encourage you to. It's, it's about John Calvin's view of work and labor and stewardship. So it's summary of his views. But this author summarizes his views this way about work. I think this is fascinating. Work is the way, she says, that we experience God's generosity. Isn't that interesting? How would that work? Work is the way we experience God's generosity. That's her summary of what she believes to be Calvin's view of things. And that's because John Calvin understood and knew that God works through subordinate means, secondary causes. God is the primary cause. He makes all things happen. If you have money in your bank account, God put it there. How did he put it there? Through you. This was John Calvin's basic worldview. He works, yes, supernaturally. He wasn't opposed to supernatural interventions of God's will in in the order of creation. But normally, he works through you to put money in your bank account. So work is the way in which you, under, you find God to be generous. <laughs> think about that. I think it's pretty interesting and profound and helpful. The whole article, as, as I, if it, insofar as it accurately represents Calvin, I don't know. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But the whole article is fascinating and helpful. I encourage you to read it if you want to, especially if you are running a business. Written into the world is the principle of sowing and reaping. You put a tiny seed in the ground in February, maybe in the house, in a little pot, and you transplant it out into the ground around Mother's Day, and a couple months later, you get 50 tomatoes, up to 20 pounds of tomatoes. A tiny seed gets you 50 tomatoes. Why would you not want to work in a world like that? That's amazing. The world produces for you. So work, young men. Now the flip side, 
I've talked to two men this morning. One, the reason I started thinking a bit along these lines is because one father came up to me afterwards and he said, I was sitting there convicted the whole time to do exactly the opposite of what you were telling me to do about work. I work too much. I can make such and such amount of money per minute. I'm aware of that constantly. I'm driven to pursue it. And I avoid other work, the harder work, by it. I know I'm doing it. I need to stop. Relational work. In your homes, with your wife and your children, that's the real hard stuff. And it's very tempting for us, in the name of providing for and caring for our family, to avoid that work. I'm a great provider. (laughs) When you're neglecting their emotional maturing, health, you're, you're neglecting the difficult work of carrying their emotional and spiritual weight. Don't do that. Certainly not in the name of an income, okay? It's almost like our hearts are deceitfully wicked. That's what I was talking to Max in between the services about this dilemma, and he said, yeah, it's almost like our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things, and who can know it? There's any number of ways we can go wrong. Young men, you go wrong because you don't work. I'm just going to (laughs) be frank about that. You work. It's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. You just work. Fathers, you be careful about your work. Work hard, but care for your family. Love them. Tend to their souls. Okay, principle six. Be generous with what God gives you. God loves a cheerful giver. It says in Psalm 37 about the righteous that the wicked borrows and does not pay back. But the righteous is gracious and, li- and gives. All day long, it says in verse 26, all day long he's gracious and lends. And his children are a blessing. And why do we work? Why do we work? What's God's purpose for your productivity and the increase that it naturally gives to you? The income that you receive from it. Here's what it is. Ephesians 4.28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, work, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with one who has need. We work so we can be generous. Why do you work? Why do you work? I've been thinking all morning, we need some sermons about work. I don't think we understand it that well. I don't think we understand what scripture teaches about it well. I think it's something we do, it's a fact of life, it's a big part of our life, but I don't think we understand the half of why we're doing it, why God would have us do it, a proper Christian view of work. God would have us work so that we can share. There are all kinds of ways to be generous. I'm convinced that it's better when you can to use your resources to create jobs for people rather than to give a handout. 
But I do want you to realize or start to realize, brothers and sisters, that a man who has the ability to run a business, our minds have been very corrupted about economics and about norms and good healthy things, okay? Because we're a part of our culture. So I feel like I'm saying a very countercultural thing. I'm aware that I am as I say it. But it's our job to say stupid things <laughs> that are really stupid, but are helpful, okay? There, there are things that don't go without saying, as basic as they seem, okay? Here's a basic thing that doesn't go without saying anymore today. When a man starts a business and it prospers and it grows through his effort such that he expands and can hire other people to work for him, he has been generous with his money. He has been generous. He has created work, and that's generous. That helps people. We are so corrupted by envy that we're just quick to resent anybody who prospers and succeeds. Just because that man takes home an amount that is commensurable to his effort and work and, is, and makes more money than his employees does not mean he is not abundantly generous. If you have the gifts from God to do that, I hope that you will because it is a kindness to the world to create work for people and to create pro- greater prosperity. Work so you can be generous. Then really do be generous. Okay? Really do be generous. Don't be a miser. What does a miser do? A miser just builds wealth and builds wealth and builds wealth, is driven to builds wealth, is driven to win, and wins. And the end is himself, and it, 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 he never spends it. He never blesses. He never gives. That's what a miser is. He just builds, obsessively builds. Don't be a miser. Work so you can be generous. And then do be generous. Paul says to Timothy in, in chapter 6 of his first letter, say, says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, proud, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Okay, you're all wealthy. You all just got wealthy. Er. Be generous and ready to share. Don't be a miserly as a steward of God's gift. Give to others and, and give to the Lord. Honor the Lord from your wealth, says Proverbs 3.9. Now, the last principle. Daniel Froman told me I should have started with the last one because he said it's the hardest one. It's where the rubber meets the road for us. It's where a lot of these things, our gratitude, our work ethic, our reason for working, all, a lot of these things are tested right here. Give to the Lord first. 
Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So we wait till the end of the month, don't we? To decide whether we have enough to pay our tithe or to give to the Lord in tithes and offerings. That's, that's the smart thing to do, right? You, you see if you can manage first your own needs and after you've managed your needs and you have some left over, then you give that to the Lord. Anthony, is that what we do? No. What, what do we do? We set that aside. We give that to the Lord. Some proportion of our income should be set aside from the beginning. This is how we give to the Lord from our first fruits. How do, what will happen if we do this? If we set aside a portion of our income at the beginning of the month and we give it to the Lord, we give it to support his work in his church, we give it, just give it to the Lord, what will happen? The next verse will happen. Proverbs 3.9, Proverbs 3.10 says this, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. That's what will happen. Remember what we said about God? God is a, a... He's a loving, bountiful father. He demands everything, your whole heart. When it comes to your money, he only demands a little token. Give to the Lord from your first fruits. They would bring in the Old Testament, they would bring a little symbol of their harvest before the Lord and wave it before the Lord and he would receive it as a token of their Signaling their dependence upon him, their thanksgiving to him for his bountiful blessings. That's all the Lord requires. A token, a portion, a tithe. He could ask a lot more. Does he need any of it? So why does the Lord require this? Why does he say, "Give honor the Lord from your wealth? Why does he say, give a tithe? Why does he say it? For himself? or for man, so that he can show his bountiful blessings, so, he, so that you can have this test built into your life and your daily routines and habits that, that actually disciplines your heart not to have an idol out of money, not to make a God out of money, who can actually signal your love for the Lord and your dependence upon him. Malachi 3.10, this is the classic text about tithing. Look at this. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, so that the work of the Lord and the ministry of his tabernacle and and church can be sustained, that there may be food in my house. And, now kids, God doesn't normally like us to test him, but here he does. He actually commands it. Test me in this. Test me in this, says the Lord. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed till it overflows? Give to the Lord. Give him your first fruits. Honor him in this way. And see if he's not abundantly generous and faithful to these promises. Why don't you give? I don't mean why doesn't one give? Theoretically. 
Why would, a, why would a person not give to the Lord? Why don't you give to the Lord? Now, even those of you who do give, that twinge of pain, <laughs> why is it there? What's it from? Why is it hard and difficult to give to the Lord? Look what he promises. God does not lie. If you're faithful, I think single people have the hardest time, in my experience, to discipline themselves to do this. But listen, young people, single people, if you're faithful to give to the Lord, he will, he will be faithful to you and generous. He will open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings until they overflow. He will take care of you. God takes good care of his children. Honor the Lord from your wealth. The command to tithe or to give to the Lord is a built-in spiritual discipline for us. It reinforces and promotes all the things that we've discussed. It helps protect against an idolatry of wealth. It's a tangible way to discipline ourselves to seek first his kingdom. It's an acknowledgement that God provides that we depend on him. It's a sign of thankfulness and gratitude. We have to work in order to obey the command so it promotes productivity and labor and, and, and works against idleness. It promotes generosity. If we start the week out by worship so that the whole week, so that we learn the lesson that all of our lives are to be worship, spent in worship of God, you know that's why we, we worship on the first day of the week. You understand that? We think of it the, as the weekend, but this is the first day of the week. We worship on the first day of the week so that we signify that all of our lives are to be spent in worship and service of the Lord. All of life belongs to him, and we, start, we pay the first fruits of our time to him. So do we signal by giving him the first fruits of our money, that all of our money belongs to him and comes from him and is meant to be used by us as his stewards faithful stewards and nothing more of the resources and the blessings that he pours out. Even though he pours them out normally through our effort. Here, he's poured out beyond our effort. Be faithful and give to the Lord and show your thanks by tithing that money. It's the best thing you can do for your soul. God doesn't need the money, but he wants your soul. And he knows that money and our souls are in play all the time. He knew Jesus, his son, would have to say what he said in Matthew 6, because that's the nature of our hearts. You can't serve God in money. And he gave us tithing to help discipline us in this. Okay, so tithe, give, be generous. Now, there's much more that could be said. I hope that you're sitting there thinking, but he didn't say this, and he didn't say that, and he could have said this, so that you'll have good conversations at home in your small groups, and you'll be thinking about this. May God give us faithfulness as stewards of his gifts. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you very much for your abundant provision this year for us. I pray that you would teach us to be truly thankful. That you'd teach us to be dependent upon you and to rejoice in the fact that you're faithful and good and generous with us. Help us, Father, to not be afraid of the future, to not take thought for our life, what we'll eat or drink or put on, nor for our life, but that we would, we would understand that you're looking out for us and that we don't have to fear. Help us, Father, to fear you and to seek first your kingdom and righteousness. And would you teach us what it is to be good stewards and faithful stewards of the blessings that you've entrusted to us at this time. Preserve us as a church. Keep us faithful to you. Keep us humble. Keep us dependent upon you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.